Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to The Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and on today's episode, Sandra McCarum, the founder of The Collective Child, discussed the advantages of a subscription model for children's clothes, what she learned about efficiency versus editorialization, and how she grew her business with zero paid marketing. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Sandra. Thanks for having me. So... Tell us, when, when did you launch The Collective Child? I launched it three and a half years ago. Okay, so where, and it's a subscription model for children's clothing. Um, so at that point, where was the discourse, the like the mood around the subscription model? Uh, yeah, I feel like we've gone through a ton of iterations, so it's been really interesting to see that space evolve. Um, so just can you describe like the landscape when you were plotting the launch of the business? Yeah, Um I feel like it's 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 important to know that I was actually working at Bloomingdale. So I had um, a long career in the fashion industry. I was there for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And midway through my time there, I was noticing that consumer behavior was changing rapidly. And I didn't feel that the industry was adapting fast enough. And so at the time, um, I knew I wanted to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of uh, new technology-driven companies that were addressing a lot of these challenges in the consumer goods business. Um, Stitch Fix was around, and it was really impressive for me to see how much gains they were making in the market in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I knew I wanted to be part of the solution, and I knew I wanted to transition. And so I launched The Collective Child really because I wanted to build something that I felt was the future of of the retail industry and something that was sort of the evolution of what I believe to be multi-brand retailers. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that solution point? Um, How do you see this as a solution for... Uh, you know, consumer needs and and where retail is going. Um, how would you kind of explain that? Well, if you think of the the value proposition of multi-brand retailers, um, I, I see it in, in two different parts. The first part is efficiency. And, you know, you, traditionally you would walk into a store and you would see all of your favorite brands under one roof. And the second part is really expertise. Mm-hmm. So whether it was that you believed that this one department store carried the best brands of the season, or you had built a personal relationship with a sales associate in a particular vendor segment, there was a level of trust um, and human connection that was important mm-hmm. uh, in that space. And so obviously the advent of internet came and it really turned that model on its head. And all of a sudden, department stores were not the winning in the solution in the efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and e-commerce really was taking charge and taking the lead there. And um, what happened with the internet is it really democratized um, the uh, availability and visibility on on brand and branding discovery. Mm-hmm. And so, all of a sudden, um, the the player. Uh, it, the 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 winning player in the in the in the space was e-commerce, and so now we have e-commerce, and um, really what 
when you think of what that experience entails online, is you have access to over a thousand brands. And um, so there are new challenges that arise from that, whether it's scroll, scroll fatigue or buying paralysis, you're just overwhelmed by a lot of choice. Mm-hmm. And even though they did an excellent job of replicating that efficiency um, value proposition, I think they haven't quite replicated what that human experience is like in department stores. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really left a wide open space for personalized styling platforms to come in and essentially take the lead on the efficiency, but then also incorporate that personal touch. Right. So it's taking kind of like the best of both sides of it because, you know, with e-commerce, we, we all know like those familiar pain points of having to sift through product pages and not being able to find exactly what you want um, and, and lacking that, that, you know, personal touch. And so whenever it comes to the um, personalization like aspect of the box, so there's a lot to get right. I know we we've, we've talked a lot about how Stitch Fix, um, y- you know, they're building up a, a gigantic data operation just because you have to know so much about these people. Pe- like it seems like the expectations are higher uh, whenever you have this very customized experience. It, like if you you know the stakes of getting it wrong um, are are pretty high as well. So how do you how did you kind of build that infrastructure for the collective child to make sure that experience was what you wanted for your customers? Well, we're, we're focused in the luxury segment. So I think that's definitely a, a unique subset of consumers that demand even more um, from us. And so for us, actually, the most important part is that we wanted to be human first. And so we data is important, and obviously technology is important to optimize that process. But for our customer segment, um, it was more important for us to make sure that the human touch was for, um, at the forefront of of our company. Mm-hmm. So, so what does that entail? How do you know? Do you hire a team? Like, how does that? How does like the technology and the and the per, the human side work together? Well, we obviously developed a proprietary technology platform um, that allows us to optimize a lot of the product catalogs that we have and um, cater a lot of the brand discovery process for our customers in, in a mu- much more streamlined way. Mm-hmm. Where the human touch happens is that we we run frequent um, what we call like educational seminars, where we talk about the product that's coming in for the season and we really outline the different types of customers that are in our platform and tie back how we're thinking about these brands, how we're thinking about styling the product. Mm -hmm. And so the selection process now becomes much more connected to the person on the other side and Mm -hmm. it's it's less mechanic. Mm Got it. And so, you know, as you're working with brands and introducing them to this concept, what was that process like, um, especially talking, you know, on the luxury end? Uh, I'm, you know, I feel like brands have been getting used to like these ideas of new business models through companies like Rent Runner or Stitch Fix. But, you know, what were those conversations like? Well, over 80 percent of my brands are international brands. They're limited distribution, emerging luxury brands. So there was definitely an onboarding process to mm-hmm. walk them through what this meant, especially you know, when you think of um, European uh, luxury brands are definitely um, very protective of their brand and they're very uh, methodical in how they want to establish themselves in the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the biggest upsides that we had with our business model is that we it was very focused on brand integrity. And really what that entails is our buying process is very different than what a traditional retailer is because we have direct feedback from our membership base. Mm -hmm. And so 
what that translates into is much faster sell-throughs than what an average luxury retailer or brand would see. And uh, that means that we don't mark down our product. So Mm -hmm. that was actually a huge selling point for us where we committed to our brands that we were not going to mark down their product. The second part that was really important in in walking them through this process is that we really highlighted what the experience was for our membership base. And they really had a strong sense of how it was special and luxury focused. So we definitely spent a lot of time thinking about packaging, shipping options, um, and especially the communication that we had with our membership base and understanding that we are really... um, sort of adapting and evolving what that human connection used to be at a storefront um, with sort of a technology facade. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and having been on the Bloomingdale side of it as well, and and then with Collective Child, do you feel like yeah, how do you talk to these brands about like what is going to be different? Um, Because I'm sure that there are there's still like a lot to getting to get used to. I'm sure it's because you know you're on the floor of Bloomingdale's. You have that brand adjacency. You're sitting alongside other brands that kind of you know lift the overall appearance and the value. But at the same time, you might be subject to you know promotions and, and things like that. So it's you know whenever you are in a setting where you're kind of disappearing into the background and letting this this stylist and um, you know technology platform take the reins on how people shop and and like experience your items. But at the same time, if when you do do that right, it you know, people feel like, oh, this was picked for me. It's it's full price, but I'm gonna I'm gonna buy it. Uh, you know, how do you kind of strike that that resonance with these brands to say like, okay, this might be what you're used to, but this is how people are shopping now. I was actually pleasantly surprised to know to, to see how open brands were to new concepts. I think um, luxury brands are having are faced with a distribution challenge at this moment. Um, where essentially, obviously, brick and mortar has declined traffic, and that's no longer really a viable, profitable vehicle for them. And then they, e-commerce is something that I think they've struggled for that exact reason that you're describing, which is they feel like they have less control over brand adjacencies. They have less control over um, what that experience is with the user. Mm-hmm. And so I, they are open. I found that they were extremely open to having a conversation about what other options are out there um, distribution-wise. And um, walking them through, obviously, other brands that we were able to onboard was also incredibly helpful in mm-hmm. that process. Um, and, and something that I obviously am very proud of that's also really important is that uh, the collective has really um, secured a very affluent high income membership base that um, is influential within itself Mm -hmm. and that customer base is growing and so one of the big selling points that we had was that we're we're giving them access to um, this customer base that may or may not know them, but they have the opportunity to become loyalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and and that, that was a big part of, uh, I think, if you think of a customer acquisition strategy for a brand, this felt very strategic and, and smart way to access a very valuable customer for them. Right. And can you talk a little bit about the, like why children's clothing? What, what made you think that this would work specifically well for that model um, and that category? Uh, and you know, how did you see like the way that parents are shopping and wanting to dress their kids? And you know, what were the shifts that were that were taking place in that market at that time? Um, so it was really interesting because the obviously the model existed, and they were talking to women, mm-hmm. and they were talking to men as well, but no one was talking to moms. And when you think of the value proposition of this particular model, is it's a time saver. 
and who needs more time than moms. Mm -hmm. And so I felt incredibly passionate about talking to this consumer segment. Obviously, I was working at Bloomingdale surrounded by working mothers, and I understood what that balance entailed. Um, and in thinking about who this working mom is today, um, she's she's very different than any other generation. I think she values, outside of valuing time, that obviously all millennials value time, but she's she's willing to to spend on the quality of clothes of her kids. She cares about the quality. Mm -hmm. um, and so this model not only was time-saving, but it actually provided her access to feel the garments, which is really, really important, um, that e-commerce didn't necessarily do. Mm -hmm. And what has the like response been like um, over, you know, especially from the beginning up until now? Um, you mentioned that customer feedback has been really important in terms of the model and how it's grown and how you've talked to brands about it um, and what you know about your customers. So what have you been able to kind of sparse out and, and decipher from what, what this customer group wants? Um, anything that surprised you on that front? Yeah, I think when I first launched the the company, I was really angling on the efficiency. Mm -hmm. And that was really the the most important thing that I thought I was going to contribute to this customer segment. And what I found was that she's really using us for brand discovery. And that was really exciting for me because when you think of what the brand discovery process is today, you know, you're scouring the internet, reading blogs, um, you're following an influencer. Mm -hmm. And when you think of what this influencer is doing, she's really curating a selection of brands and making suggestions. And so what I didn't understand at the time that I understand now is that we're an extension of that relationship. Mm -hmm. We are getting to know our members and we are curating a catalog of brands according to her preferences. So um, we've really tried to reinforce that. And um, obviously, we continue to grow our brand catalog to continue to offer that to our customer base. Yeah. How did that realization kind of change your your strategy and your approach, both on like the brand conversation side, but also the marketing side? Well, What's, what's been exciting for us is that our growth has been 100% organic, mm -hmm. um, So there, which speaks to the product market fit, obviously, of the model. Um, but the real focus for us was to ensure that we were providing the best quality of service to our membership base. And that had positive results because, again, 100% of our customer growth was coming through referrals. Um, so it was sort of an unintentional win to focus on building that relationship and getting more share of that customer wallet. Mm -hmm. So we need, you, it's 100% organic. You haven't spent anything on marketing. No. Um, this year was the first time where we started to really test what a customer acquisition cost is. Obviously, as we're thinking of scaling the company, it's really important for us to understand what those levels are mm -hmm. to scale the company. But prior to that, we actually had had garnered a 15 uh, a membership wait list. Mm. Uh, 1,500. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... So how did you, like, was it word of mouth? Like, how did you tap into this community and get it to spread without actually putting money behind it? Because, you know, I think, as we know, like, the customer acquisition uh, trap for performance marketing becomes more expensive over time, especially for something like a subscription where you probably have a lot of people who might try it and there's bound to be some customer drop off. Um, you know, how did that strategy from a marketing perspective, you know, obviously help validate the the concept in the brand itself, but also change like the quality of the customers that you were bringing in. So we're very lucky that we launched the company in New York City and that we are surrounded by highly influential women. 
Um, so we really started out by asking five friends to test out the model. And we knew then that we just needed to get those five people to love the product. And um, it sort of spread like wildfire. And for us, the sort of the culture behind our brand is that we would rather have 50 customers that are advocating for your brand than 2,000 that sort of are neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. And that culture um, within our our marketing department um, really was actually like an accidental, like I said, um, solution to our customer acquisition strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So with those customers that were really valuable, was it like an ambassador program? Like how did you, uh, was it there like product gifting involved? It seems like, you know, organic media is almost coming back into uh, attention in the spotlight because of how effective it can be and like, you know, longer lasting, it has more traction. Um, What are, but you know, so but it's a harder strategy to like pin down because it's you know a lot of it you're just kind of leaving up to to uh, customers on the other end. But are there any like tactics that you that you broke down to help drive that? So um, earlier on, um, again, it was there. It was just a paid membership base. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of accidentally landed on several influencers' hands, and they were actually paying customers as well who loved the product and obviously talked and shared um, their love and passion for the product that we were sending. And we we tried to sort of evolve what that relationship would be. Um, and that was really important for us, obviously, in year two to understand what the, dyna- the dynamic of that is. But I would say most importantly for us is that um, because our customer segments are moms, Um, they're a lot more vocal and passionate about the things that they find for their kids. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of the dynamics of how moms talk to each other, they really value each other's sort of communities and they value any type of advice or product recommendation that they get from other women. So by naturally tapping into moms as our first target market, mm-hmm. um, it was sort of an easy way to 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 spread the word because of the um, social uh, influences that were happening within this car- customer segment. Right. And and so for starting that way for the, f- the first three plus years, how does that now shape uh, and serve almost as the foundation of your paid marketing strategy as you start to, to plan that out? Uh, do you feel like you're at more of an advantage because you have this customer base already that you can, you know, draw insights from and, and target and use as like a, a format for the type of people you want to, you know, you're already serving and then, you know, that you can extrapolate out from there. Yeah, I definitely think we are at an advantage because of our customer base. I think we're we're very, very, very lucky to have their ears. And um How we're thinking of evolving that relationship is, again, going back to one of the earlier points that I was making, which is all about curation and how do we establish a credible voice for more of these women and more of these customers as curators for product that they want, believe in, and um, will obviously enjoy. And so Mm -hmm. if I think of the evolution of that, it's it's really the reason why we these women found us and believed in us and advocated for us is because we were, again, a curator, a source of curation for them. And so how do we continue to build that editorial voice and that branding voice so that um, 
users, whether they're active members or not, are valuing the advice and recommendations that we have within mm-hmm. the market. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Did, so now it seems like now there's a focus on that curation, that editorial voice, brand discovery. So do you still have the same like feelings and, and thoughts you did at the beginning about this importance of efficiency and, and time saving uh, and just like, you know, kind of wanting to put this, you know, responsibility of, you know, shopping for your kids, like, you know, take it a little bit off your plate. Um, you know, how do you kind of deal with like what you learned about your customers versus what your your hypothesis was at the beginning? How do you sort of marry those those two sides now? Because, you know, I think it comes from two different customer needs, that that desire to discover new brands and, and rather than just saving time. Yeah, I think for us, um, we were we really set out to prove the model at the beginning, and we knew we wanted to target moms because it was an underserved market segment. We've proven we've proven that the service works for them, and we've proven that this model works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're really seeing this as a much larger vision to how the retail environment will, will, will shape up to be. I think this this model is is going to evolve to be a, a permanent um, shopping channel, just like e-commerce had been 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is going to be sort of a, a, a real player. And I think com- slowly companies are trying to understand that I th- in a world where everything is at your disposal, you, you just want someone to tell you the five things that you need. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is efficiency in that curation because you're doing part of the legwork um, and giving these valid recommendations. And uh, that's so it's interesting. And I think that, you know, we are going to see this evolve. But how do you look at, you know, it seems in some ways like the subscription box market has kind of seen its like bubble burst. And there's, you know, customers are kind of getting subscription fatigue. You know, sometimes at the end of the day, it's like how many individual things can I be paying for every month? Um or at least on like a recurring basis. So, you know, how do you use, especially that, that uh, you know, highly engaged customer group you have to figure out a way to keep them engaged and try to avoid that, you know, just people realizing like, okay, this, this isn't going to be for me anymore. So I would say a couple of things. The first one is um, we don't love to consider ourselves a subscription mm-hmm. because we actually... Um, are, are not forcing any product uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't have a monthly recurring fee. It's, it's, it's not um, like a traditional subscription box. Um, and I know that there are many out there, and I know that the challenges that they're facing. But we're more of a membership, um, or at least that's how I like to describe mm-hmm. um, my consumers, because they're they're not we're not forcing them to lock into any particular cadence and they really have the op- choice which is the most important part of this model is mm-hmm. we're sending them anywhere between 6 to 14 pieces and they have the ability to choose and they're only paying for the product that they're choosing right. and that can happen 12 times a year or once a year or 6 times a year mm-hmm. um in terms, the second part is uh, um, churn, right? So I, I understand that again it, within the subscription com- company model, um, churn is really important. We actually run at incredibly low churn rates. Mm-hmm. Um, our churn rate is roughly around three percent, and industry standards are usually between six and eight. So mm-hmm. um, I think again, it speaks to being flexible in the model and um, understanding the value add that you're you're contributing to our membership life. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you think about these, 
like hurdles for for entry or just keeping customers that these different segments of retail have for a company like a Bloomingdale's or any other department store. It's getting people in the door to shop, getting them to think about you every anytime that they need something and actually getting there and finding a good enough experience that you want to buy something. For a subscription box that's more traditional, it's like every single time that you send something, it has to be useful to the customer. They can't get it and then say, oh my God, I can't believe I'm still paying for this. You know, I think we've seen that like product pile up that, that comes with a lot of those models and just people feeling locked into a certain way of shopping. And so for, for you guys in this, in this sort of in between, it's like a membership, um, you know, for, for that type of model, what do you think is like the most important like customer touch point that you have to get right every time in order to keep them? Especially because like if they get, if they get a shipment, they don't have to buy anything, but eventually, you know, that that's going to get harder to convince them over time that this service is right for them. Like, what would you say is the biggest thing that you need to prove to the customer that you're doing right over and over again in order to keep them? Um, I think it comes down to product. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the best education I've received in the industry is that it really comes down to the quality of the product. That's what sets us apart from any other company out there that's re- retailing. So um, we always make sure that the content of our boxes feel special. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's there's math that goes into that. Um, We try to maintain a high-low assortment so that it feels a little bit more accessible, but she can also buy into the wow pieces. Um, But ultimately, it comes down to the wow factor of these boxes. And I think um, we make sure that we maintain a very high ratio of wow pieces in our assortment to make sure that she's feeling emotionally connected to that shopping experience every single time. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the math behind a wow piece? How do you know? How do you know one when you see it? <laughs> um, it's a question of the year. Um, I, I, I think wow can mean lots of things for different people. Um, and it depends on what your style aesthetic is. Um, but we're when we curate brands and the product within each brand, we want to make what's the value out of that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're buying a white T-shirt, why is this white T-shirt special? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to make sure that every single product that we're selecting has a reason to be. We, we're not huge on fluff pieces and um, fillers. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that's also really exciting about this model is that I don't have a a space to fill in a department store. Right. I can actually go to a brand, and if she's just really good at these two styles, I can just buy those two styles. Mm-hmm. There's no, the product is really dictating the the buy the purchasing um, strategy, and and that's unlike any other um, business model. Even in e-commerce, you always want to have a brand presentation. This isn't customer facing. Right. Um, this is membership member facing, mm-hmm. and what she cares about is having the best product, not. Not for not for the brand to have the best assortment, not for the floor to be filled. Like this is really taking it's very customer centric. Mm-hmm. It's really taking what she wants and and making purchasing decisions based on exactly that. Right. And you learn more over time. Exactly. Um, so so moving forward, uh, you know, we've seen Stitch Fix has gotten into kids. Um, you know, How do you look at how this category has expanded and where you're able to grow with it? Like, do you envision any other categories? Like, how do you sort of foresee since, you know, you're banking on this type of model, which is, you know, customer centric and does like the curation though and the selection for you using you know the the stylist and the technology 
could you see that expanding outside of, of, of clothing and the products that you're working within right now? And how do you, you know, sort of consider um, the, the competition in the category as you make those decisions? Absolutely. I think when we first set out to prove this concept, we had luxury children's clothing um, in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see this now that we've proven the model and we've seen, obviously, our unit economics be incredibly profitable um, with low customer acquisition costs. I mean, to me, the, 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 the scope of, of opportunity is really, really large when you think of the size of the luxury market and how difficult um that industry is finding it to to sort of locate their customers and distribute to them, and so there, to me, this is there is a huge opportunity with this. In terms of the um, competitive scope, f- uh, frankly, I think it's fantastic that Stitch Fix um, is is seeing so much success, um, and that other companies are seeing that because they're normalizing this shopping pattern, and mm-hmm. and that's ultimately what we all want, right? So. Y- there ha- this process, I think, will continue to normalize at the beginning when e-commerce was was still fresh. I think people were hesitant about what if it doesn't fit or I need to go to the store and try on the product. And so there was a lot of hesitation on the model. So the more players that are out there, I think the better it is for all of us because we're no- normalizing this um, shopping channel. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, and getting that in front of customers more. Um, so we're almost out of time, but you know, I know Stitch Fix has been very on the record about their feelings about not needing a Stitch Fix store. Have you ever thought about um, the Collective Child store experience or physical retail? Um, I've, I've been asked that question, <laughs> um, and I know that there's definitely space um, available. Um, like, like actual retail space? Yeah, or? like retail, <laughs> retail space available that I know people are trying to fill. Um, to be honest, like my goal right now is to focus on the growth of this model mm-hmm. um, and to further expand my membership base within the luxury market. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I feel like that's in a great spot, I'll definitely have rethink that. Um, but right now, I think... It, there's still so much room to grow within this particular model that I'm, I'm spending all my energy there. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was really nice chatting with you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription to Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members access unlimited stories, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's $80 off by entering the code intro at checkout at glossy.co slash subscribe. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.